I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer as always is Patrick Antonetti. Um, interesting uh, episode this week. Um, two great guests, two longtime uh, colleagues and friends, and I think you will enjoy this conversation. Jay McManus is a columnist for the Daily News, the New York Daily News. She's the director of the Center for Sports Communication at Marist College. She's a former ESPN and ESPNW columnist. Um, she had bylines in many, many places, including the New York Times. We worked together at the Columbia University School of Journalism, where we taught a class together for a number of years. Katie Strang is a national writer for The Athletic uh, and one of uh, the best people, if not the best person, I work with at that place. She is a former NHL and MLB writer for ESPN, and if you're a fan of sports writing or sports journalism, these are pretty much names that you already know, and uh, we head immediately to our conversation. Jane McManus, Katie Strang, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Hey, Richard. All right, Jane, I'm going to start with you, and the topic of this podcast is um, sort of how mental health is discussed and written about on sports television and in sports journalism. And a couple weeks ago, this is not really a new uh, observation, but Jane, I'm always struck by just how little discussion there is of this within the sort of parameters of sports television, whether it's pregame shows, whether it's the sports chat shows, you know, whether it's sports center uh, types. And I got to sort of wondering why that is. So l- let's start there in that, like, for something that's really a national crisis in the United States of America, why so little of this talk when it comes to athletics? Well, I certainly think that sports writers of, of our generation uh, didn't come into sports writing thinking they were going to have to cover anything than what happened between the lines. Like, occasionally there'd be a scandal, occasionally there'd be a DUI, but really they got into it because of a love of sports and wanting to tell stories in that way. And I I think as the years have gone on, and as I think the public has demanded uh, more in terms of transparency, as social media means that we get to see people's state of mind in real time, I think it's become clear that this job really requires knowledge that goes beyond that of what happens in four quarters on a football field. And that is something, that's where mental health comes in. But I, I still think, particularly sports writers of our generation, a little bit older, are deeply uncomfortable with having to do that. And, and, and sometimes there's resentment with having to, you know, cover, cover these issues like, you know, domestic violence or mental health uh, or substance abuse. These kinds of things can get, um, I, I, I don't think that, that people necessarily have educated themselves the way that they need to, to be able to tell these stories and talk about this effectively. I think the second 
uh, issue with it generally is that you have athletes, former athletes, analysts who have, they kind of parrot the mentality that a team develops. And that's very much about ignoring issues that are going to possibly detract from performance. And I think we see this in the way that people talk and the way they answer questions. Um, it's very much about, you know, what did you, what were you thinking on that play? Well, I just wanted what's best for the team. We very much get these performative responses. And so talking honestly and openly um, in, a, in the context of sports is still something that's very difficult for people to do. Katie? Yeah. And I think, I mean, I, I totally agree with what Jane says and I, and I think we'd be remiss to also just, you know, point out that I still think there's a tremendous amount of stigma around mental illness and mental health. And I know for me particularly, um, I've covered a wide range of sports, but hockey's always been sort of my bread and butter. And in hockey specifically, there's um, a certain amount of value on stoicism, right? And playing through injury and playing through pain and hiding pain and hiding injury. And it's been sort of fetishized in a way of, um, you know, what can guys endure, you know, throughout the course of their career and in, in their line of work for the sake of the team and getting wins. And so I think that has created a culture in which transparency and openness is not always encouraged. I'd like to think that changing um, in hockey at least a little bit and I think the greater sports world at large um, but I, I agree with Jane in a, in, a, in a very broad context I think the main reason you see so little dialogue and discourse about this issue and about other difficult issues such as you know sexual misconduct sexual assault sexual abuse domestic violence is because it's uncomfortable to talk about and I think um, a lot of that stems from people's fear of getting it wrong and um, people not quite being educated in how to talk about it in a way um, that makes sense and is appropriate and conveys the, I think, appropriate level of gravity and insensitivity to a situation. So I think the more we learn about this, the more we all take steps to educate ourselves about this, I think we'll see those conversations becoming more frequent and hopefully more robust. Katie, I want to stick with you. Uh, <clears throat> and this is probably, this is a clear bias on my part, given um, where I currently work, the fact that I come from sort of a magazine culture. Uh, everybody on this call sort of comes from, I, you know, I would sort of say a print digital culture. And I feel like that world has done better when it comes to these discussions, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the athletic or the New York times or, uh, you know, ESPN.com. I like, I feel like there's been a significant advancement of how these issues are covered, particularly mental health issues and just the sort of the openness and adultness of those discussions. But yet I don't know if that's, filtered over per se to television and it certainly has not filtered over yet to sports talk radio and so katie uh, how can how can in your opinion how can that change and is maybe the only way it changes just with uh, a generation coming up behind us where the stigma of talking about mental health 
is nothing like it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. Sure. I certainly think, you know, the, the generational change will help in, in many different arenas in terms of what our, you know, the kids now and our children will grow up, you know, sort of feeling comfortable talking about and open talking about is it will be vastly different than what we did. Um, I also think it's important to point out that I think print journalism to some degree has an advantage in the sense that I think there's more room for more nuance um, when you have the luxury of articulating your thoughts in writing and going through an editing process and really being deliberate um, and thoughtful about how you want to convey a certain point or, you know, establish, you know, a, a, the context of a situation. And I think that's more difficult to do on television. And I, I have very limited television experience. Jane certainly has more than I do. Um, I find television very difficult. Uh, it's not natural to me, right? And and I, it's it's hard for me to have a natural, difficult, sophisticated conversation because I'm really nervous. And I, I understand most people on sports TV are not, but the nature of television, I think, are sort of, you know, these sort of shorter segments, shorter sound bites, things that are a bit easier to digest. And so I think that print has the luxury of going longer, going deeper, providing that nuance. I don't think TV outside of, you know, a long form television segment has the luxury of doing. Jane, do you uh, you want to yeah, add to that? I completely agree with that. I th- and I think of, of, you know, sometimes I think of somebody like Mike Wise, he wrote a really uh, impactful uh, and, and long piece about his own childhood trauma for ESPN. I think, you know, print gives you the license to do that and to find those points of commonality and to really get into an issue and understand it. And so, you know, Mike's piece was not just about his childhood trauma, but it was also about the reporting that went into, you know, finding out more about, um, you know, issues of sexual assault and, and, you know, how it impacted him and what, what happens and the burden that victims and, and, um, carry into their adulthood. And it was, you know, it's very moving to get something like that. And there's, there's really, it would be very unusual to find something like that on television and, and television, I think it hasn't, it it converts reporters into talking about whatever issue generally, because you have the same four people in a pregame show or the way that you have it set up. And, and sometimes though, in certain cases, and I think of like Stefania Bell at ESPN who is you know, somebody with a deep background in injuries and who's kind of brought in to talk about injuries, but now she talks about everything and fantasy and um, has been expanded. Or Mike Pereira at Fox who was brought in to talk about, you know, rules and official and officiating and to be there in those points. We don't really have people who are brought in with a mental health background, who are brought in with um, kind of a background in some of these issues and how they uh, respond to sports and can talk about those in real time without having to do a lot of homework in a breaking news situation. And I do think that, um, that the conversation really suffers because of that. Um, you know, one of the things, uh, I want to ask you both about is sort of, how do I sort of, sort of get into this? You know, I, Katie, I have no doubt that there are, um, there are people within organizations who will hear from fans 
who say, I don't want this kind of talk when it comes to sports. I don't want to have to think about uh, depression in athletes or athletes becoming um, addicted to certain uh, to certain things, or I don't want to hear about sexual assault or harassment. And I wonder, um, I guess just in your personal experience, whether working at ESPN or elsewhere, did you get any kind of pushback on that? Because I would imagine that there are executives, at least, you know, who hear from fans who don't want that as part of their sports coverage. But my God, we sort of are overrun by people claiming, you know, no politics in my sports where it's, you know, and we all know that's bullshit. But like there is a segment of people out there and you certainly see it on social media who don't want to have to deal with this within the, you know, the prism of athletics. No, I actually haven't encountered much of that in, in terms of these specific issues. Now, once I think you start going into like, you know, more stories that are more broadly sort of sports intersecting, intersecting with, you know, cultural touch points and sensitive issues. I, I, I find that, you know, you have people really railing against like, you know, they don't want the social justice warrior sports writer take. They, they Sometimes they do just want the nuts and bolts. However, I have found um, an almost overwhelmingly positive reaction when you do um, a deeper dive story about someone that is struggling with an issue um, relating to mental health or substance abuse or addiction or childhood trauma. And I think the reason why that there is often such a positive response is because at our core, like we are sports writers, right? But we are trying to tell stories about these players as human beings. And I think bringing a level of empathy and humanity um, to our coverage always makes it better. You know, you, I hate um, when I feel like sports writing has become in some ways transactional because I think, you know, you, you have to treat athletes and executives and coaches as human beings and that's how you're going to get your best material. And, and I think that's generally when you are able to establish a level of trust and rapport with people and they see you as human beings too. And I think that give and take is, is very good. And what I think fans actually do appreciate about those stories is those points of commonality that Jane was discussing earlier, which is, I mean, there are so many people that can relate and empathize with having an issue with anxiety or having an issue with substance abuse or addiction or having a family member that is going through a mental illness. So I think ways, you know, there are so many ways in which professional athletes are unlike us, right? They are extraordinarily gifted usually and they are almost just extremely dedicated and just so hyper vigilantly um, locked into doing everything they can to protect their livelihood and what is often a very short career and so they are in so many ways very different from us in in that respect so I think when we are able to show athletes as human beings and people like us, I think fans really connect to that. And I think that's a really important thing that we must always be mindful of. 
Jane, what do you think the appetite is among sports fans for those kind of stories? You know, I I do I do think there are going to be there are going to be people who aren't going to want to hear about it, don't want to tune in, prefer their you know prefer to watch a you know a robot, an animated robot, you know, crush things um, as part of their pregame show. Um, but I, I I agree with Katie, and I think there's some real insight in what she said, and that is that we are storytellers, and I do think that more people are likely to connect with a, a well-told story about an athlete. And I, and I think, of course, about Kate Fagan's book, uh, one of my colleagues, former colleagues at ESPN, who wrote a book about Madison Holleran, who was an NCAA athlete um, who committed suicide, and somebody who really struggled with mental health issues and with not, you know, not knowing how to express not feeling right. And I think people can relate to that. And the response to her story uh, was overwhelming. And the response to her book was overwhelming. And, and it, to me, like that was the way you tell a story like that is that you make somebody very relatable and you really get into um, and without judgment, trying to understand you know, what is difficult about being an NCAA athlete and the demands on you and the idea that you have to look perfect in the air of social media. And, you know, all of these threads played out and, you know, a well-told story like that, you know, can actually bring people to sports, I think, and make them care about athletes and, you know, make them feel connected to what's happening um, rather than, you know, in a way that, you know, I, I, if you're going to lose a couple of people because they don't want to watch a show or they don't want to hear a comment or they don't want to read a story, that's fine. I don't mind losing folks like that. I think you actually broaden the tent and you bring people in with storytelling like that. Jane, when you were at ESPN, one of the roles that you had was when the um, when there was a story about uh, allegations of sexual assault, had, rape had come up. Uh, you would be brought on to uh, often brought on to the set, whether it be Sports Center or you know a sports specific show, and discuss sort of in uh, broad strokes what that story meant, and obviously sometimes sort of the specifics of the story. Uh, I don't really have much faith in places like Fox to discuss this stuff. I mean, they've sort of made it clear they don't really have a news department in sports, and they're just showing games. ESPN still maintains that it's the you know their own phrase the worldwide leader in sports they still have a robust editorial section they stay they're still interested in this and my thought is that you know on a lot of particularly some of these pregame shows it'd be really value it'd be an incredibly valuable position to have someone um, who's a trained uh, psychologist or a trained mental health expert to talk when these issues come up obviously you know someone with um, gravitas and in investigative reporting on uh you know the nexus of sexual crimes and athletics but i haven't I, I don't know if that position necessarily exists and certainly doesn't feel like it exists anymore after you when you've watched espn in particular you know what have you seen when these sort of stories come to light well just it's important to note that i was out of the country for two years so i was consuming a lot of yeah, true yeah right. i was consuming a lot of english language coverage on this but but in the uk and and actually, I, I'll say that, you know, uh, Prince Harry over there has done some, re has been very upfront with a lot of mental health issues. And it's actually allowed in some ways people to open up in every sphere of life about it. I can remember even just talking to neighbors who would say, you know, would, would 
refer to some of the conversations that he's opened up and then talk about a child or um, like, honestly, this happened in, in everyday conversation. And you could just see how one person kind of opening that door and saying it was okay to discuss it really did unlock that issue for a lot of people. And it cascaded into everyday life. And um, so in some ways, over there, they're much more open in discussing these kinds of issues. Um, so that aside, though, I do, um, I do think you need to have, you need to, to talk and have a strategy with reporters about how we're going to discuss these issues. Too often, I think, and particularly 10 years ago when some of these things were coming to the fore, people really relied on uh, stereotypes and, and dramatic misunderstanding of, of the dynamics behind you know, for example, the way um, the way that that alleged victims are treated in the wake of an allegation against a famous person, and now we know a lot more about that because of of Me Too and some other. Um, you know, I think of a story of rape uh, that won the Pulitzer. What was it? Four years ago, five years ago. Um, that was such an impactful story and really kind of laid bare how the legal system doesn't necessarily serve. Uh, people who have been assaulted very well. Um, so, but but somebody who's who's read those stories, somebody who has that that working knowledge, I think it would be incredibly impactful. And and not just when it comes to those particular stories, because I do remember sometimes I would walk, you know, into on set and I would see somebody look up and see me coming and be like, uh oh, what happened? <laughs> you know. So there's that. Like I kind of got tagged with that. The you know, angel of death walking in. If I if I was on your set, then there was something really wrong. Um, but but also, you know, people could talk about like performance anxiety. You know, if you had uh, someone who underperformed in a game scenario, you could talk about. And and you know, some athletes will talk about this as well. You know, I think about Nick Kyrgios in tennis. And you know, having somebody on to discuss, well, you know, what's actually happening there? What is performance anxiety? Why is a you know, why is Serena Williams unable to win a major championship in the last four times uh, that she's had the opportunity in a final? These are really good conversations to have, and somebody with a little bit of insight into that could not just be, you know, commenting on, on terrible actions, but could also be adding insight on the other side. Well, Serena lost last time because Bianca was the better player that day, Jane. But I, I hear what you're saying. I understand. <laughs> well, that's... Well, she also said she didn't play her best. Which is true. I, think, I agree with she that. She hasn't played her best in those finals. Yeah. So if she played a little bit better, then the other person across the net wouldn't necessarily be the better player on the day. And and why is it? She's actually said, I, I have, I'm having a problem getting over these finals. I'm really curious to find out more about that. Like, what is what goes into that? What could that possibly be? How could she address that? That's really interesting to me. Yeah, I think it, this is just more of your Steffi Gra- Graf fandom, and you're trying to protect her... Uh... Rain at the top. Uh, no, it's not. It's my Margaret Court uh, fandom. No, no one should have Margaret Court fandom. Uh, but no, I, I, your your point is well taken on Serena, and that's and that's interesting, Katie. I want to ask you um, something about the language of uh, sexual assault and violence when it comes to whether television or print or digital. I happen to see uh, a tweet. Literally, I think it was yesterday or two days ago where some news station was saying something to the effect of, like, tonight at 11, basketball coach accused of having sexual relationship with 13-year-old girl. 13. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, yeah. yeah, the language of that is the incorrect. Worst. That is rape. Um, and so I wonder, um, again, given you, um, you've covered these issues, uh, given you've written about this, 
and all, you know, I, I don't put myself above this. We all could use education on sort of the language of this. And I give uh, Kerry Potts at ESPN a lot of credit for, for talking to staffers there to try to uh, come up with the proper language here. But, like, should there be, you think, like at every sports news outlet, like training on um, on how to sort of write and approach this? Because it strikes me that it would be pretty valuable if that was the case. Yeah, not to give away sort of, um, you know, internal information, but this is something we're actually discussing um, at The Athletic right now about, um, you know, language we use and how we write about really sensitive issues. And actually a wonderful resource that um, a, a friend of mine who, who works in sex crimes prosecution um, turned me on to is the DART Center, um, which has a lot of really wonderful tips for not just reporting on sexual crime and victims of sexual crime, but um, on immigration issues, on domestic violence, um, on, on covering people who are, whose English is not their native language. So I, I, I think that's a wonderful resource that um, I'm looking forward to utilizing now that I know about it. Um, I am very glad that you asked about this because this is something I feel very, very strongly about in terms of the language we use around, specifically sexual assault. But, but I think there's applicability here for other sensitive issues, such as domestic violence and mental health. Um, Diana Moskovitz, who I know you know, Richard, um, of Deadspin, wrote a fantastic article a few years back. And I think the title of the article is called Against Allegedly. And it's a great, it's a great piece. And it really dissects um, how loaded of a term allegedly is. And um, ever since then, I try to use very neutral language. Um, I try to avoid allegedly as much as I can. Sometimes it's unavoidable. Um, I try to avoid accuser. I try to avoid accused. I, I try to be as plain when we are talking about accusations. I try to be about as plain as I can. So instead of saying um, the allegations or allegedly this happened, what I generally say is so-and-so, whether it you know, be someone that is willing to come forward publicly or Jane Doe, said, according to court documents or according to a police report, that this happened to her. This is what she said. And, and, and to me, that takes away a lot of sort of the connotations that come with a word like allegedly. Okay, so that's one example of, uh, of something that I try to be super, super mindful of. Um, another thing, and this was a big thing for me, um, I covered the Larry Nassar case for us. Um, at The Athletic is um, I tried in whenever I could to ask um, women that were, you know, affected by his actions. I always asked them personally, do you prefer to go, do you, would you like me to refer to you as a victim or a survivor? And that's a very personal choice and people have very different feelings on that. And I think when you have the luxury of being able to ask that and give them some sense of control and ownership and agency. I think that's really important. Um, the other thing that I feel pretty strongly about, and, and this is relevant in the Nasser case, and I've, I've written a few other stories that have involved sexual misconduct, um, is 
I also believe in very clinical language when it comes to describing abuse. I think when you say someone was abused or molested, I think your mind just sort of mentally glosses over what happened. Um, and I think you need to, you really need to say what happened. So like, for instance, in the, in the Nassar case, I, I would spell it out, you know, these women who were digitally penetrated during, you know, a medical session under the guise of medical treatment. So it, it's uncomfortable and it forces you to think about it, but that's the point. It is uncomfortable. We should be uncomfortable with it. And, and I think that's really important because we need to understand what it looks like and, and, and what these people are really enduring and, and grappling with. Um, so I, I think language is huge. And there are so many examples of where I think we can be better. And Richard, I'm so glad you brought up that example because I feel like we've been seeing it a ton even in the Epstein case in the news of, of either referring to you know, children as young women, which they're, you know, I, I feel like is really kind of distorting the, the inherent crime here or describing a very non-consensual relational dynamic that is wildly power imbalanced as, as normalized by saying sexual relations with a 13 year old. Um, so I think that's obviously something that we need to be very careful to avoid and very cognizant about being better at. Well, I did not know about that sort of initiative at the athletics. So I really appreciate uh, you doing that, Katie. And what you said was really fascinating and education to me. Jane, I know you, you certainly want to add to that. Absolutely. I just, I love the way you just laid that out, Katie. So well done. And I think, you know, part of the issue is, and, and I've been reading particularly egregious, on Twitter, right? Because it's the headline, right? We've got to boil this very difficult story down into six words. And that I think is often where the trouble comes in. And, and I, it, see, it appears to me anyway, that some outlets have an issue using the word rape, unless someone is actually convicted of rape. And of course, that is the term that refers to an adult having sex with a child. And it's impossible to kind of Square that, and so what they do is they say so and so had sex with, as though that somehow solves the problem, and really it just compounds the problem and normalizes something that is egregious. And I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think you know, I've seen a couple of headlines now tweeted out and then <clears throat> and then drawn back. And I think that's important that you point out to these news outlets when they are. Uh, when they are putting something in terms that are completely inappropriate uh, and, ag- and agree 100% that if you, even if you don't use the word rape, you have to find a way to comport with your legal guidelines and with the reality of what happened. Reporting is about telling someone what happened and explaining in ways that make sense. And sometimes if you're so- trying so hard to uh, make it palatable, then you're distorting that truth for your readers. Jane, I want to finish on this topic. Um, you and Katie both have reported on uh, many of these stories. Obviously, Katie um, wrote uh, so much stuff for us when it came to the Nasser trial. And I know that you've written uh, columns and, and certainly been on television a lot when it comes to 
sexual assault for for people who are listening to this podcast and there's obviously a lot of people who are either in the business or want to get in the business uh, as best you can can you give a sense of what the challenges are of reporting and writing about these kind of stories um i think you have to educate yourself uh, uh, each time you have to cover it you have to go back and you know familiarize yourself with best practices I think it's also really important to talk to people who've experienced this. Some of the best conversations that I had when I started to realize that I was going to be doing more coverage of this were with survivor groups, were with people who were in law enforcement, who'd had a lot of experience uh, working on these issues and on these kinds of cases so that I could kind of understand what the process was there, where the failings were, what the successes were. Um, and I mean, I think steeping yourself in this is the first step. I, I think there's also, you know, unfortunately there's a chance you could really get pigeonholed, um, which I think I, I have to some extent, although again, I try not to fear that because I think it's important enough to cover and I think it's important enough to cover well and that it's, it's worth that risk. Um, but uh, that's something that's certainly true. And I, and I think you have to realize that every case is going to be different and you can't apply necessarily what you've covered in the past to what's happening. There are cases that are different in terms of the facts. Um, and I think when we kind of fall into a rut with this kind of coverage, that's when you get things wrong. Katie, the same question. And again, if you want to, um, if you want to personalize this to the, the Nasser trial, you're, you're welcome to because that, um, one, I thought you did an amazing job covering that, but it, it just could not have been easy just given the complexities of that case. It wasn't. Um, and I'll be honest, like one thing that I would do probably a little bit differently if had I, do it, had, I had to do it again, um, and if I were to advise someone that was in my place, is to be very... Um, cognizant about the sort of impact it will have on you as a reporter and a person and to be really mindful of taking care of yourself at that time because secondary trauma is a really real thing. Um, I had a very difficult time covering that case and it's part of what made it, you know, to me probably, you know, the most impactful story that I've ever covered in my life in terms of you know, it hit me very hard emotionally. And I, I, I think for the first time in my career, I, I tried to use that um, in my writing. I really tried to channel my emotion into my writing um, and to really infuse um, these stories with that raw, visceral emotion. But, you know, I was a new mom at the time. Um, I had a baby at home. I remember the first um, the first victim impact statement, luckily, I, I was in the overflow. I was in the auxiliary courtroom, and I'm glad for this now. But I, I it sometimes it is very hard to emotionally prepare yourself for what you're about to hear. And I had to reach into my bag to grab my, my daughter's diapers because I was crying so hard. And, you know, we're taught to be very emotionally detached sometimes. And that's really difficult um, in these stories to do. And, you know, I, I think there are probably a lot of reasons that that hit hard for me. Like like I said, I was a new mom. I was probably very hormonal. 
Um, I was a competitive gymnast growing up. My gymnastics coach went to jail for sexual assault. Luckily, I was not a victim. But, you know, I, I think there were a lot of weird kind of things that I was working through. And, you know, for me, like, for anyone, if, if you have that or not, um, it is one thing to hear about, you know, over 300 women getting um, molested and um, abused. But when you see a name and a face um, with each one and you hear their voice shake and you see their parents crying, it is something entirely different. And so, like, if I were to um, advise someone in my case, I would say, you know, be very aware of the impact it'll have on you. I actually, I went to a therapist um, to talk about it because I, it, it, it was um, bringing up a lot of like sort of weird latent emotions. And I, I was like compartmentalizing and I found it like really difficult to talk about and, and to write about. And I was getting like really bad headaches. Um, it was very diff- difficult for me to do even, and, and even like a year past you know, when the assignment was completed. So, you know, I, I'm really glad that I did that. Like I, I sorted out some things and my therapist was like, yeah, of course that's totally normal. Like that, that would have a huge impact on you for reasons X, Y, and Z. Um, but I would totally, like I have advised people at our company that have covered really tough things. And I mean, reporters are exposed to really awful things on a daily basis. Like people that cover mass shootings, um, you know, in death and addiction, and it can take a toll. So I would absolutely encourage um, people that are reporting about tough things. It's so worth it, and it's so impactful, and I think it's so important. But I also think it's really wise to be aware of how it impacts us as people and reporters, too, and to take care of ourselves accordingly. That's well said. Jane, I, I've always believed, and I think probably the best organizations, news organizations in the country will do this to provide um, counseling, time off, or whatever after covering uh, those kind of stories. You know, I'm sure they do that for people who cover conflict, you know, around the globe. You can only imagine what those people sort of are seeing, and I'm sure there's a sense of, like, uh, PTSD. But I think the same if you cover, at a certain point, if you are covering so many stories that involve sexual assault or rape, you know, criminality, like it, 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 you know, reporters are human beings too. I know nobody wants to hear this in the, you know, in the current era that we're speaking of, but, you know, Katie just spoke honestly on that. Like that's, these are taxing things I can only imagine to cover, um, you know, and whether it's the athletic or sports illustrated or the daily news or ESPN or whoever, be wise to maybe invest in some kind of, you know, free services to, to, to help reporters sort of deal with and process all the horrible things that they are reporting on. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I don't think that, I mean, I, I can't remember having that conversation uh, while I was at ESPN, but I certainly remember feeling a, a, a bit of burnout at, at a few points. Um, and I had the, the one, the story for me that really did it was, um, I did a story on Christy Mack, who had been in a relationship with an abusive MMA fighter. And I went to visit Christy in Las Vegas, and we had a long day together, a lot of conversation. And it was one of those, it wasn't for TV, so the interview really could range 
it was a give and take. Um, and I remember, you know, flying back to New York and sitting down at my desk and trying to write the, the lead and just the tears, you know, having just kind of feeling so much empathy and feeling like I really wanted to convey her story fairly and accurately, as well as getting all the facts right and making sure that I had the legal portion of it proper. But really, you know, this was her story in a lot of ways and wanting to make sure that I got that right. Um, and yeah, and it's, it's definitely, you know, when you think about, you know, she almost died and, and thinking about the injuries and thinking about the fear. Um, and it was kind of the, you know, that was kind of later, that was a year or two after I'd started covering this stuff or, so I really had, I think it was kind of the the accumulation of all of those stories and all of those people that I'd spoken to and all of those police reports that I'd read. Um, it is impactful. And part of me, though, tries to, you know, <laughs> tries to not pay attention to the, how I feel about it, just honestly, because I feel like I need to make sure that I'm still a good conduit for that kind of storytelling and that information and that part of my, that my rational brain is still engaged in making sure that the facts are all well represented and that I don't get so emotionally involved that, uh, that I'm not using my investigative skills in the right way. I don't want to just become someone who is an emotional writer. Um, and I think actually that was part of my strength as a reporter on these was that I didn't just let it become about the emotion and, you know, part of that, yeah, there, there's a toll that that takes when you're trying very hard to walk that line. Um, but again, I think it's really worth it because I think these stories are very important to tell and to tell well. And I think too often they're glossed over, they're shunned to the side, or people don't want to talk about it. And so when it comes up, I think, you know, it's our job as reporters to really make sure that we're in a good place to be able to tell those stories. Is there anything else you guys want to add before we uh, close up this podcast? Katie, do you want to uh, um, do you want to talk about Jane's? Um, I mean, star turn as a major academic at Marist. <laughs> I was going to say. I mean, I can vouch for Jane as an educator because she was my teacher. We know that, right? As someone who taught with her, she's a fantastic teacher. But my God, uh, her appearance. Incredible. But no, I'm about to actually take a shot at her. My God, uh, her appearance. Her appearance on uh, that House Hunters show. I mean, I haven't seen overacting. I still haven't seen it. I well, still haven't seen it. Katie. Yeah, I mean, I, I need to watch it. <laughs> you gotta yeah, watch it. I mean, it. the. Yeah, I have not seen like that kind of overacting since like you know like a like a Larry King cameo in a film or something. Uh, yeah, but but otherwise, yeah. I mean, I'm very happy to see Jane. Uh, now leading a you know big uh, university uh, department and uh, you know I know I know she's got to be psyched to have so teaching solo she doesn't have to just have to carry any more co teachers anymore yeah I don't have I don't have this ball and chain around me anymore oh I thought of something that I want to add I thought of something that I wanted to add um, okay so here's one thing that I had a conversation about recently um, I think sometimes we shy away from asking people about really difficult things because we make the assumption that they don't want to talk about it. And I actually think in many cases, many, many cases, that is not true. I think for many people that have gone through really difficult things, it can be a very cathartic, powerful healing thing to take ownership or to talk about something candidly and openly and with someone 
that they trust um, and they know will care to convey their story. So I think that's one thing that I would, I, I would tell people that are pursuing the stories is, is don't assume that because you might be asking about this person the worst day of their life that they won't want to share because they might. Um, Jay McManus is a columnist for the Daily News, the director of the Center for Your Sports Communication at Marist College, uh, former ESPN and ESPNW writer, columnist, broadcaster, and um, follow her on Twitter as well as uh, her work at Marist. Katie Strang is a national writer for The Athletic based in Michigan, uh, covers uh, many, many different things for The Athletic, also a former NHL and Major League Baseball writer for ESPN, two of my favorite people in the sports media uh, landscape. And I'm really, really excited that they were uh, able to come on today uh, for a little bit of time. All right, Jane and Katie, thank you so much. I know your day was busy, so I appreciate uh, you doing this. And uh, I'm sure I will talk to you both offline, as the kids say. But thanks so much for uh, joining me today on uh, the Sports Media Podcast. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Jay McManus and Katie Strang for coming on. Um, two incredibly smart people and thoughtful. And that's a topic I've wanted to do a podcast on for a while. And I, I couldn't think of two better people for it. Uh, if you're interested in this kind of subject matter, uh, head to the archives and see what we've had over the last couple weeks. Last week was a big changeup. I had Garrett Graff, the author of The Only Plane in the Sky, an oral history of 9/11, and that was a conversation about how do you, uh, you know, how do you put into context uh, a book about 9/11, um, a, a singular, you know, day unlike any other. And he has a pretty brilliant oral history of that day, including what it was like to be on Air Force One uh, with President George W. Bush and all the people who were there. So it might be a topic you'd be interested in away from sports media. Prior to that, a conversation with John Orand about NFL and college football ratings. Before that, ESPN Monday Night Football analyst Booger McFarland. And then before that, Gus Johnson of Fox Sports, Bruce Feldman, and Stuart Mandel. Head uh, down the archive list. You can see all the different podcasts that we've done. If you like this, please uh, subscribe. Uh, leave us a star rating and a review. That is how the podcast continues with uh, Cadence 13. All right, thanks as always to Patrick. Thank you to uh, Sean Cherry and John McDermott and Chris Corcoran and Spencer Brown and everybody at the big, gigantic Cadence 13 family, of which uh, this podcast correctly ranks very low compared to some of their giants. All right, for everybody here, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week on the Sports Media Podcast.